neighboring. And uh, I'm excited about it. This is going to be kind of our, our summer series. Now, neighboring is something we actually talk about with some regularity uh, around the church. It's not a new topic. We understand that God has uh, called us to be missionaries in the places that we live. And so uh, this, is, uh, this is where we want to just kind of give our thought and attention this morning to say, how does God call us to be neighbors, to be good neighbors, and uh, to neighbor those people who actually live right around us, who are our actual physical neighbors? Sometimes in the church, we can, uh, we can sound real spiritual, right? We can say, hey, who, who's my neighbor? Right? Who's my neighbor? And we can answer that question by saying, everybody. Like, everybody's my neighbor. I'm called to be a neighbor to everybody. There are no strangers, all of that. And, and that's, that's true in one sense. But there's a problem, and the problem is we can't possibly be neighbors to everybody. And sometimes when we say, hey, everybody's my neighbor, it actually means nobody is my neighbor. And we can miss the fact that God has actually put people right around us, our actual physical neighbors, people who live right next to us, and he has called us to be in relationship with them. And so uh, that's, that's what I want to talk about over these next few weeks. And who better to look at as we start our series, launch, launch a series as the probably the most ideal neighbor in the most iconic neighborhood, Mr. Rogers in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, right? How many of you, by show of hands, how many of you like grew up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Or uh, kids will include you in this, Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. How many of you have watched that, right? I know my kids have. And so that I, I love this. So like I grew up, I'm a ch- child of the, the 80s, so I grew up watching these low-budget uh, shows on PBS, right, of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And my kids have gotten to watch Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, kind of this reboot, a little more tech-savvy than uh, Mr. Rogers was with the hand puppets and stuff. But the crazy thing is that this guy, Fred Rogers, who, uh, you know, who's on air for, for decades and decades on PBS, his life has ab- absolutely captivated people who are close to him. There's a documentary, actually, that was released this weekend called Would You Be My Neighbor?, and uh, it's in theaters around the country starting uh, this past Friday. And you can actually go to Wichita and see it on the 22nd or to Salina. It's uh, the closest it will come to us. But I'd encourage you to do that. Um, just reading, reading all of these reviews uh, about the documentary on Fred Rogers' life. And uh, I'm not going to lie, like I found myself over this last week kind of preparing for this, like in tears, like just hearing stories of the way that he changed people's lives just by the way he treated them. Um, there's actually a movie coming out next year, um, a, a full-length, you know, feature film called You Are My Friend, and Tom Hanks is playing Fred Rogers, and it, the whole movie is based on the story of a reporter who gets kind of called to go do this fluff piece covering Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, and his life is transformed by Fred Rogers and the way he, he interacted with him, and you just hear this story after story of, of his life. Now, did you know that Mr. Rogers was an ordained Presbyterian minister. Did you know this? Uh, He was ordained into the ministry, and his ministry was not to pastor a church. It was to pastor America's children. Um, It was to create television that that was actually meaningful. It was uh, taught kids how to manage, you know, themselves and how how to relate to other people. And so, like, asking this question, like, okay, there's these documentaries, there's these movies. Now, he, he passed away in 2003, and yet he's just cast this long shadow of a legacy 
Why? Like, what was it about him? What was it about his show that made him so endearing to people and has a legacy that is so enduring? And I think one of the reasons is that he created, through his art, he created a little picture of the way the world was meant to be. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was a picture of the way the world should be. It was the way the world could be. And his Christian convictions led him to this, like to say, I want to give people a picture of, of the way you're supposed to relate to other people, to value other people, to show them uh, as, as worth something. In fact, he, he ended every episode, maybe you know these words, I won't sing the songs for you, I'll let somebody else do that maybe, um, you're welcome. Um, but this is how he ended every episode, he said, you made today a special day. Just by being you. There's only one person in the whole world like you. You yourself. And then he would sign off. And he wanted every, every kid who was watching to know whether you have people in your life who are telling you you're special, somebody cares. He wanted every person to hear an expression of care throughout their day. It's beautiful. It's awesome. Now, um, and I didn't realize exactly just how, like, radical he was as well. It's not like, he was like, he was kind of a cream puff. Like, he was, like, super, like, he was just nice, right? What do you mean radical? Um, well, so, in the 60s, right, as Jim Crow laws in the South are just beginning to crumble, and, and there's starting to be this movement toward, toward uh, racial integration, um, there was all sorts of pushback in the South. And uh, so, so, Fred Rogers is sitting in church one day, and uh, this African-American man named Francis Clemens comes, and he's an opera singer, and he performs in their Presbyterian church. And afterward, uh, Fred goes to him and says, uh, Hey, Francis, I'd like you to consider playing a police officer on my TV show. And at first, uh, Francis Clemens says, Like, what, what business do I have being a police officer? Like, police are sicking dogs on people like me, and they're spraying us with water hoses. I, don't, I, can't, I can't play a police officer. He says, Well, I'd like you to consider it. And he did. And he became Officer Clemens on the show and was this like reoccurring character, just giving kids a picture of the way the world should be, integrated and whole. Um, in, in the late 60s, there was this episode um, of he and Mr. Clemens, Officer Clemens, sitting in a swimming pool together, having their feet in a swimming pool together. Maybe you've seen this. And it was in direct response to a swim-in that happened in the South in the, in the 60s, where, um, you know, black folks, white folks would show up at a, at a white-only swimming pool, and they would have a swim-in to say, it is not okay that this is, this, this space, public space is segregated. So they would come together, they would have a swim-in, and there's this picture, this horrific picture, and maybe some of you have seen it, of the, the pool owner pouring muriatic acid into the water as these folks were swimming. It's horrible. So Mr. Rogers responds in his own kind of like kind-hearted way. By he, he creates this swimming pool outside. He says, man, it's a hot day. I'm going to go out and put my feet in the water. He kept his sweater on, by the way, though, which I've never quite understood. Had a thing for sweaters, I guess. And he goes and he's sitting there and he puts his feet in this little blue plastic swimming pool. And Officer Clemens comes up. And he says, Officer Clemens, would you, like to sit, would you like to put your feet in the water too? It's a hot day. And Officer Clemens says, yeah, that'd be great. So here's a black man and a white man sitting in a swimming pool with their, their feet in this water together, making a very profound statement to children about the way the world should be. And then as Officer Clemens gets his feet out of the water and they get a towel, Mr. Rogers takes the towel and he says, actually, could I, could I help you dry your feet? 
This looks a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Like, like embedding these values of serving and loving and caring for other people. So there's this picture. Mr. Rogers created this microcosm of kindness and care. And so I think uh, it's important for us maybe um, to, just like, to just think about how that works itself out in our lives as followers of Jesus. How is God wanting us to be these kinds of neighbors in our own neighborhoods? Now, you might like... Okay, neighboring. That's a series uh, title. You might say, like, wait a second, you're using that word incorrectly. Like, you grammar uh, snobs would be like, what are you talking Neighboring, that doesn't work well. Do we have any grammar snobs in the room, by the way? I'm kind of a grammar snob sometimes when I write, but not so much when I speak. So, but the way we're using neighbor is as a verb. That neighbor is a verb. That you can actually live next to somebody and be a neighbor without neighboring. We neighbor intentionally. We choose to neighbor. To neighbor is to relate to those around us as valuable. Uh, to neighbor, it's more than just living next to us. It is a way of sharing life and caring for another. A neighbor is a person who lifts others up, who makes time, let me say that again, who makes time to stop and talk and look at people in the eyes and shake somebody's hand. Uh, a neighbor is a person who both asks for help when they need it and offers help when they have it to give. Like, that's, that's what a neighbor does. A person um, who knows how to make you feel like you matter. And we all have stories like this of times we have been neighbored, right? I, in fact, there's a story just from this last week. We have a, a gentleman from the congregation who um, the details of his story aren't mine to tell. But you know, he farms, and he's going through some really difficult medical stuff right now. And so doesn't have the energy, and, uh, and so he has had, I talked to his daughter this last week, and she said, it's been so cool to see neighbors come together and to say, are there things we can do to help you? Are there ways we can support you with harvest going on right now and all this stuff? And it's just really cool. This is a, this is a picture, like when, especially when, when things are hard, this is what neighbors do. Neighbors move toward each other, and they care for each other. And you have stories like this of times you have been a neighbor, and you've been neighbored. Uh, by others. Now, your neighborhood is probably going to look very different from my own. Your neighborhood might be 10 blocks or it might be 10 miles, depending on where you live in central Kansas, right? And so don't think, don't get caught up and it's like, well, I don't have a neighborhood. You do. It just might look very different. Uh, This is a picture of my neighborhood. My neighborhood is uh, Farmington Park, and uh, the city of Hutchinson is doing this this, um, neighborhood initiative. Are you, you guys aware of that? They, they're like creating neighborhood identity. So Southwest Bricktown was the first one, College Hills up by the college, and now Farmington Park. My neighborhood is the third one, and super excited about it. Uh, Carmen and I were able to host a planning meeting in our backyard a few weeks ago, um, pulling neighbors together to plan a big party coming up uh, this fall. So um, this boundaries of my neighborhood, 30th on the, on the south, Roberts, south side of Roberts on the north. By the way, uh, Josh and Brandy Estrella, if you're in here, Hello, neighbor. I think they're the only ones from Journey who actually live in our neighborhood. Um, Plum on the east and Walnut on the west. In my neighborhood are 345 homes. 345 households. That means like at minimum, there are about 650 people who live in my neighborhood. And do you know what's true of every single one of those? God loves them. God loves them. God knows their names. God cares about them. They have a story. Every one of my neighbors has a story of both joy and a story of pain and sorrow. I, and, and God wants them to know what it means to live the kind of life God has always wanted people to live. And, and, 
And I need to be honest that um, I haven't always been a good neighbor. Like, and, and real honestly, like, I, the last couple of years, I haven't been a very good neighbor. And I can make lots of excuses about that, but there's no sense making excuses. It just, it's been the case. Um, <clears throat> we had, we had great relationships with our neighbors. We've been in this neighborhood for 10 years. And we had super good relationships with our neighbors. We're sharing stuff. You know, I don't have a tool, so I go borrow one. Or I don't know how to do something, so I go ask somebody. And, and it happens back and forth. And we're carpooling, you know, with our neighbors. Our kids are in school with us. And so we carpool together in the mornings and evenings. It was, it was awesome. So, so good. And then both of those neighbors moved away. Um, which tends to be a pattern in our neighborhood. People move away from us. Um, <laughs> so, so now we have new neighbors that move in, and they're fantastic, they're good, it's just different. And if I'm really honest, like, there, there are times when it's just like, man, it's just not the same as it used to be. You ever find yourself doing that, of like, man, my neighborhood's not ideal. And, and, and you just, you, you want to go back to a way that it was, or you want to, like, well, maybe someday we'll have a better neighborhood or whatever. And, um, and I think God is calling us to give up that idea of an ideal, and he's calling us to just love the ones we're with, right? To just, to just love those people who are right around us here and now. So uh, I, I'm excited about this. In fact, our kids do a better job of this than we do. Um, I, my daughter said, Dad, you're so good at embarrassing me. <clears throat> so sorry, babe. Um, that's a dad's job, by the way. You'll have a really high threshold when you get to high school. Um, the other day, our daughter is, is crafting, which is what she does. And I was like, hey, babe, what are you making? And she's like, so she shows me, and this is what it was. It says, to Mr. Graber. Now, Mr. Graber lives across the park from us, and uh, he lost his wife several years ago. And we'll, we'll, sometimes we'll take him stuff, cookies or bread or a meal or whatever, and he'll bring us stuff, toys that he still has for our kids and stuff. So it's a good relationship. And here's what she says. Hey, here is some blank for you to enjoy. Love the hearts. Good job, babe. Um, hope you have a nice day from the Millers. Like, and this is so awesome because we had no plans of taking anything to him, but she, like, is, like, inspired to, like, care for Mr. Graber. And so our kids are leading us to neighbor. And maybe your kids are too, and we just need to follow their lead. They get this better than we do sometimes. So go back to the, the, to the image of the neighborhood, if you would. Now, here's the crazy thing. If your neighborhood, again, we've got like maybe 650 people in our neighborhood, your neighborhood might look very different. You might have 100 or less. But if the statistics are true that are true of the United States in general are true of my neighborhood, that means a quarter of these people live in chronic loneliness. 25% of Americans say, I have nobody to share joy with and I have no one to talk to about hard things in my life. 25% of people say they, they, they just, they live in chronic loneliness. Now, one of the crazy things about this, about chronic loneliness, how many of you guys remember the Beatles song, All the Lonely People? Or, or maybe those of you in my generation, you know, Green Day, right? Uh, I walk a lonely road, the only one that I've ever known. So whether it's the Beatles or Green Day, um, there's this picture of loneliness. And loneliness is actually really bad for you. Like physically, it's really bad for you. There's a book called The Village Effect that has actually said that loneliness, persistent loneliness, alters the genes and the cells in our body in a really negative way. That chronic loneliness is actually as bad for you as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, living with hypertension or, or morbid obesity. So first, like we might end up saying like, well, I'm not lonely, so it's, it's good, I'm good. But what if our neighbors are? Because it's not about us, is it? 
It's actually about who God has called us to love and to care for. Like 25% of our neighbors are, are, are potentially living in this place that is really, really harmful to them. Why? Because they were created in the image of a relational God and they were made to live in meaningful relationships where they're known and being known and maybe God is asking us to provide that for them. Could we be open to that? Everybody tracking with me? All right, so let's look at John 1.14. If you have your Bibles, turn actually in your Bibles to Jeremiah 29. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, Jeremiah 29, but I want to just reference uh, for, uh, John 1.14. Because Jesus, like in everything, he's our pattern for neighboring. Um, we're disciples of Jesus. We look at Jesus and we, we learn from him. And so here's how John describes Jesus' entrance into the world. John 1.14, and this is from the message, paraphrase. It says, the word became flesh. This is God, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Is that cool? Like this, this crazy picture of, of God in Jesus, not staying at a distance, but wanting to relate to us. So how does God do that? Is he comes close to us. He goes below the surface and he moves into the neighborhood of this world so that we could touch him and see him and hear his voice. He came close to us. This is how God relates to people. He comes close to us and he's still coming close to us through his spirit. So the word becomes flesh and moves into the neighborhood, and, and Jesus just calls us to do the same, to just, to, to not become flesh in that way, like as we didn't have flesh and now we do, but to say, how do I flesh out this good news of Jesus? How do I put skin and bones on the good news of Jesus right here in my neighborhood? Does that make sense? So Jesus is our pattern. Um, so let's take a look at Jeremiah 29. Now, how many of you know Jeremiah 29, 11? Life verse, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope in the future. Um, <clears throat> thing with Jeremiah 29, 11, beautiful verse, but often it's plucked right out of context. So we have no idea where it comes in the story. We don't know the chapter it's in. We don't know what's actually happening in the context of that verse. And oftentimes it's dangerous, like with the Bible, just so you know, like to just sort of like pull a verse out like a recipe because the Bible is a story. It is a story of God's work, and so to know the context is actually really, really helpful. So, here's the context. The context is 587 years before Jesus. So, think about the timeline in your brain. You've got the Christ event 2,000 years ago, right? About 2,000 years ago. Rewind back 587 years. Um, What happened with God's people is that they completely missed the plot, When Jeremiah is writing, God's people had completely missed the plot of God's story. And what they had done is what we are always tempted to do, is to take the blessings of God and to keep them for ourselves. To stockpile them, to hoard them, to say, Ah, God, you're so good to me. Thank you for blessing me. I've got, you know, I've got wealth and I've got stuff and I've got comfort and I've got security. So I'm just going to sort of hoard this stuff. And, uh, you know, I've got so many blessings, like, I, I don't know what to do with it. I'm going to have to tear down my barns and build bigger ones to, like, stockpile the blessings of God. This is, a, this is a picture, right? And this is what God's people were doing. They had missed the plot that actually God's blessings are never intended for us to stockpile. They're intended for us to give away to others. Like, that God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to all people in the world. And they missed that. And so, um, and they had actually become so unlike God that God couldn't use them anymore. They were actually like mistreating people and enslaving people. It was ugly stuff that was happening. So here's what God says to them. 
587 years before Jesus, God says, um, I'm actually going to remove my hand of protection from you because I can't use you anymore like this. And when God does that, this other sort of foreign power, the Babylonians, come in and they just sort of sweep the place clean. Um, they destroy Jerusalem, they tear down the temple, they uh, carry the people off hundreds and hundreds of miles away to Babylon, to this foreign pagan place. And here they are now. In Jeremiah 29, they're in this foreign land that is not ideal, that they don't want to be in, and they're longing for the way it used to be. Man, when we were there, when we were with those people. And they're longing for the time when God will restore them and let them go back home. Does that make sense? So what do you think God is going to tell his people in Jeremiah 29? His message to the prophet, in this place they don't want to be. Here's what God says, starting in verse 5. Build houses. Build houses. And settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Where are they supposed to increase in number? there. Like that place matters to God. Place matters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. And seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is the message of God to his people in a place they don't want to be. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to settle down and get used to it. I want you to put your roots down and I want you to increase in number there. I want you to pray for peace there to come in that place. And I think this is the same message that God gives to his people today. Like to say, you know what, no, I'm not, in the, I'm not like in the ideal place. I'm not with the ideal neighbors. And, and Jesus says, well, give up on the idea of ideal because it doesn't exist. The only option you have is to love the people around you, to invest in the place you are now with these people. Um, and, and so he, he gives them the, these real simple commands, right? What are the commands that God gives them? It's nothing extraordinary, is it? Build houses, live in the houses. Plant gardens, eat what they produce. Have marriages, like celebrate life, live. And then pray for peace. Pray for, and the word peace is the word shalom. Everybody say shalom. And shalom to you. Um, shalom is this, is this picture of wholeness. Shalom is a picture of human flourishing. I mean, who doesn't want to flourish? right? Seeking the peace of our neighborhoods is saying, what does it look like when people are flourishing the way God has always intended them to be? This is God's message. Um, live in this place and, and seek the peace of the city. Now, here, here's a real crazy thing that I, I want to make some connections to. Why does God ask him to plant gardens? Think about that for a second. Why do you think God asks his people in this place to plant gardens and eat their produce? Why might God be asking us in our neighborhoods to plant gardens? So, a couple of reasons. There's some real practical things, right? What does it mean when you plant a garden? It means you're rooted. It means you're actually, if you're going to do all the work of preparing the soil, of watering, of planting the seeds, of pulling weeds, it means you think you're going to be around when the crops are ready to eat. You're not going anywhere. And especially like a couple years ago, we planted raspberries and we planted strawberries and we planted asparagus. These things that take years to actually produce. 
And, and it's a picture of saying, we don't think we're going anywhere. We're rooted here. And what happens when your neighbors know that you're not some fly-by-night neighbor, that you're actually here to stay? It builds all kinds of trust, that they can trust you, that you value this place. Um, planting a garden means you, you actually think this place is fruitful. It's worth investing in. Um, planting a garden means you're not scared to get your hands dirty, right? That, you, that you're actually willing to like sort of uh, work in this. I'll get to those of you who don't like gardening in just a second. You'll get off the hook here in just a second, but stick with me. You're like, I got to plant a garden. I don't want a garden. I just had a manicure. Um, I did just have a manicure. It's called biting your nails watching the Cavs game. That's my manicure. Um, so uh, it, it, means, it means you're rooted. Uh, it means you value your neighborhood. Gardens inspire other people. You walk through a garden and it's beautiful. And it's like, man, could we do this? Like the reason we garden at our place is because we've been inspired by lots of you. Um, it, it, we've like, man, could we grow this? Could we do this? This is so cool. Gardens inspire other people um, to, to see how they can produce good fruit. Um, Gardens also give you something to share. You can share salsa, right? You get to share the abundance of fruit that you, you get from your garden. And so gardens, it's real practically, it's this great way to invest in your neighborhood. But what about for those of us who don't like gardening, right? Some of us, some of, we don't like, I go to the farmer's market. It's cool. I don't want to garden. Well, here's the good news for you. Gardening's a metaphor. There, I think God was calling them to plant real gardens, but he was also saying gardening is a metaphor, so think about this, Jeremiah 29, plant gardens, seek peace, shalom, in the city. Okay, hold that in your brain. Now, fa- rewind to the very beginning of the story, Genesis 1 and 2. Where does the story begin? In a garden. Ding, ding, ding. Right? The story begins in a garden. And this garden is not a veggie garden. It's not a salsa garden, the Garden of Eden. It's much more like a national park. Right? It's this, like, massive, like awe-inspiring place, and God puts man, woman, Adam, and Eve in this place to be gardeners, to be like park rangers, to take care of it, to, you know, to move it in the right direction. But the problem is the man and the woman fail at their job to take care of the garden, right? So, so things get messed up and get out of control, and they don't, they don't care for the garden. The garden, they actually exploit it and abuse it, and it, 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 it turns really bad, really ugly. But the story, the big story of God begins in a garden, and it begins with a picture of shalom, peace, wholeness, flourishing. These people are related to God, their creator. They're related, they're whole and fully at peace within themselves. They live in harmony with each other and they care for creation and creation cares for us, for them. This is a picture of shalom in Genesis 1 and 2. It does not get any better than this picture in Genesis 1 and 2. This is what human beings were made for. Peace with God, wholeness within ourselves, good relationships with others, and caring for the world and the world caring for us. This is, this is absolutely the best that it gets because this is God's vision. Garden and peace in Genesis 1 and 2. Fast forward to, to Jeremiah 29, the story of God's people in exile. What does God tell them to do? Plant a garden and seek peace. It's this way of God saying, you are called in this place that is not ideal to actually give people the picture, to live in such a way that people are inspired to flourish, that they can see the way people were always intended to live, not to be against the culture, not to be against it, and, and not to be isolated from it, like to just sort of pull back and say, no, 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 we don't want to be contaminated by those, those pagan people, not to be isolated from it, but also not to be just absorbed into the culture so that you lose your distinctiveness, 
but to actually do something radically different and to be planted within it, being a radically different kind of human being. To do the simplest things in the world, build houses, live in them, have families, grow gardens, but to do it in a way that gives people a picture of the way the world was meant to live to create a microcosm of kindness and care. Does that make sense? Raise your, nod your head if you're tracking with me. So you've got Genesis 1 and 2, a garden and peace. You've got uh, Jeremiah 29, a garden and peace. And then John chapter 20. This is where it gets super cool. Um, Jeremiah chapter 20, Jesus, right? The word has become flesh, made his dwelling among us. He's moved into the neighborhood. And now Jesus has gone to the cross and he's taken away all of the curse that these first gardeners failed in. He's taken all the ways human beings have blown it, mis uh, abusing our relationship with God and with each other and, and, and being distorted within ourselves and abusing this world. He's taken all that on himself, all the sin, and he's taken it down into the cold earth. He's been buried. And on the third morning, Mary Magdalene comes and she looks into the tomb and she's, she's, she's surprised because the body of Jesus isn't in the tomb. And this is what, this is what it says. Mary uh, looks around and she sees Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. She thought he was a gardener. Now, is this a mistake by Mary Magdalene? Ah, he must be a gardener. Or is this the most powerful theological statement in the Bible? That she mistakes Jesus as a gardener because, of course, that is what he is. Jesus was the seed that was planted in the soil of this world. And Jesus says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it rises and it produces much fruit. It gives this harvest. And Jesus is a seed that was planted in this world of sin and sorrow and pain. And it came up out of the ground, this new resurrected life, and it began bearing fruit in the person of Jesus. And Jesus now is the gardener who is the first fruits of resurrection. And Jesus is the one who is at work in the soil of our own souls changing us and preparing us and cultivating us so that he can send us out into the world, into our own neighborhoods, to plant gardens, to give people a picture of the way God has always intended them to live. Jesus is the gardener of God's new creation. And then, so we have garden peace, garden peace. And what does Jesus say? What are the first words of this new creation? Jesus appears to the disciples when they were standing in a locked room and he came and he stood among them and he says the words, Peace be with you. Shalom be with you. And Jesus says again, in case we missed it, again Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father is sending me, I am sending you. And he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the gardener who is at work right now in our own lives, who's not afraid to get his hands dirty in the humus of humanity. You, you are not too messed up for Jesus to cultivate. You're, the soil of your life is not too messed up for Jesus to turn into something beautiful and fruitful. And he's already at work. He's already doing it. And he's already at work in the lives of our neighbors. He's already there because he's a gardener who, who cares and who's involved. And he looks at us 
He says, you are now being commissioned as this new Adam, this new Eve in this world that is being made new by the power of the Holy Spirit. You are sent out as gardeners to get your hands dirty in the lives of those around you, to be rooted and to give people a picture by the way that you live, by the way that you love, by the way that you treat other people, a picture of God's good world the way it was always meant to be. And the promises. The promise is that someday this gardener is going to return and heaven and earth will be one again. This is the picture of how the story ends, right? Of heaven coming down, this holy city coming down out of heaven from God and Jesus saying, behold, I am making everything new. And do you know the beautiful thing about that? Is that all of the little gardens we've planted with our lives, the real gardens, the metaphorical gardens, they're all just going to be sort of swept up into this whole new creation when heaven and earth are one. That's why Paul looks at his people and he says, your labor in the Lord, it's not in vain. The way you love your neighbors, it's not in vain. It's not for nothing. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This week, what if, what if we spent time in our neighborhoods? What if we canceled other plans that we had or we, we rearranged our schedules or we got up a little early and we just said, um, I'm just going to walk around my neighborhood. Or maybe your neighborhood's too big. Maybe you're going to drive or ride your bike. And as you spend time there, you just ask God, God, what does what is thriving, what is flourishing, what does shalom look like here? And you just get to sense God's heart and God's picture of how he's calling you to actually plant a garden of shalom in your own neighborhood. God, we trust that you are sending us out. You already have sent us and you have already placed us in this place to plant gardens, to get our hands dirty, to be ambassadors of your peace. And Jesus, we, um, we need to, to have a radical conversion of mindset. God, because I admit that I miss my own neighbors. I drive past them. I don't stop. I don't spend time listening to them and valuing them. God, and I repent. God, I I pray that you would help us this week to see with new eyes, to see our neighborhoods, this place we've always been, but we've never really seen, to see it as a place where you are already at work, where you have called us to be people of peace. God, help us. Give us a vision through the power of your Holy Spirit. We trust that you're already at work there and that you want to use us. You want to use us. We pray this in Jesus' name.